The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. Thank you, Darlene and Karen, and the whole team that has been getting ready for this project. And I encourage you to take that green insert home and begin the prayer process of deciding on a scripture that might be God might lead you to, <clears throat> and then describing how it is that that's, that's what you want this new season of growing together to look like under the, the, the Lord's grace and mercy. And so, also encourage you to come this evening. Uh, tonight, we, we look forward to our dedication service. There is child care provided, by the way, so please pass that on to young families so that they know as well. I want to also extend... Uh, thank you to the congregation for praying for Pat and I. Uh, Pat's mom has been ill for over a month, and uh, we've been in and out of the Grace Hospital three times at emergency, and uh, it just continues on, and we're just praying that God will bring things to a, a close. My mother has also been not so well in Kenora, and so we've been lots going on. Actually, just two weeks ago this morning, exactly, we were in the Grace uh, Hospital emergency. I had phoned Kevin and said, Kevin, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it to church or not. He was, he was making a plan, um, but I did make it that day. Um, but we were in this emergency ward at Grace Hospital where it was just kind of an admitting area of emergency, and there's just curtains between you and, and the next patient. And we were sharing with mom, Pat's mom, and uh, she was, uh, really had a traumatic night. She thought she was dying. Uh, they called the ambulance. She went, and, um, and so we were praying, giving her comfort from Scripture, and I was sharing with her about the Lord. And right behind me, here's, here's the bed and mom, and behind me, behind the curtain, was a woman that the nurses had just given a bedpan to. And she was crying out, and she just kept on, someone help me, someone come, someone help. And I felt so sorry for her. I knew I couldn't go in there and help with the bedpan. I wasn't about to do that, but... Um, so in the midst of this, I was ministering to mom and, and praying for her, and, and I said to her, in the midst of her, her anxiety, I said, uh, at one point, I said, God is listening to you, mom, when you pray, and then from behind the curtain came the words, well, I wish you'd listen to me. <laughs> I felt like going over and preaching to the woman in the bedpan, but... Uh, I didn't, didn't have the courage. You know, that's so much of what Paul's addressing in Galatians. I know there's a segue here somewhere. Um, but but he's, he's, he's talking about how, how, how is it that we can know that God is listening? How is it that we can know that we can have a right relationship with God? When guilt and shame and all that stuff follow us around because of our conscience, because of external and internal pressures, and because of the fact that we are sinners, how is it that we can know that God loves us, that God listens to us, that God doesn't just love us, but that God likes us? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Last week, Pastor Doug was talking about Galatians chapter 2, and he unpacked the word justification a little bit. And it's a, it's a, it's a mega word for us Christians, the word justification. And I want to take it out of the dry and theological books that it seems to get left in, and I want to bring it onto the street corner, and I want, it, I want it to be part of your family room. I want it to be part of your vocabulary because it's, a, it's such an intensely practical word, justification, if we understand it. 
And, and Doug said last week that it, it's this phrase that's been passed on is just as if I'd never sinned. God treats me just as if I'd never sinned. Now, that's a good definition, but it doesn't complete it because even if a human being were to exist that had never sinned, they still would only be at a zero balance. And it would not address the positive righteousness which Jesus Christ gives us. Okay? It would not address the nature that lives within me that wants to sin still sometimes. And so it's more than just as if I'd never sinned. It's, it's actually this incredible thing whereby God, in His gracious act, declares a sinner righteous solely by faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing that you and I have done. Only what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we put our faith, we trust in that. We believe in that act of God by Christ. And so justification, God takes a guilty sinner and through simple faith, through what Jesus has done, He declares me righteous. Now, He only declares me righteous. I am not righteous yet. I am not righteous experientially yet. I am still a sinner. I can still sin. In fact, I hope you don't argue with that. I remember just thought of it this morning. We were, when we were in Bolivia, Pat and I, and we were teaching at the seminary, and I was on the panel of Freddie Mujica, his uh, thesis statement. He had come out of a denomination in Bolivia that believed that you could attain sinless perfection in this life. I think that denomination created a whole bunch of hypocrites. I think that denomination drove sin way underground. And this man, Freddie Mujica, he took four years with us, and at the, at the end, he wrote his thesis on why sinless perfection in this body is impossible. I still have a copy in my office, if you want to read it in Spanish. You see, I'm, I am still a sinner, but I am able not to sin. That's St. Augustine's Latin phrase, posse non peccare. I have this ability by the nature of God in me. I have now the possibility that I can resist sin by His strength. Not by my own, but by His strength. And so here is the dilemma that Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians. Paul is addressing the, the question is, how is it that God, the Holy One, can hang on to His integrity and at the same time, declare people like you and I who are sinners righteous. How does he do that? And Paul explains how he does it in books like Galatians and Romans. And one of the simplest ways of descri describing how he does it is in, in one word, is the word imputation. Another ma matter of fact theological word, but it, it's an important one. It's intensely practical. What is imputation? Imputation is this idea. It's a bank account kind of word. If, if we can imagine it that way, I am in debt to a holy God because of my sin. And I have such a debt that I'll never pay it back. Jesus Christ in His perfection is rich in every way, spiritually speaking. And He in His mercy toward me imputes His riches to my account. Okay? 
and vice versa, my, my sin and my debt is imputed into his account. It's like that. Now, if it was only the fact that my sin was imputed to his account and he covered my sin, I'd be at zero balance. But it's more than that. His righteousness is given to me. Imputation. And that is the way that God can have his integrity by declaring people like you and I righteous in God's sight because he put the absolute full load upon Jesus Christ and he bore our sin in his body on the tree. And he put all of his sin on Jesus. I read a story about a man once who bought a Rolls Royce from England and he, he took it to France. And when he got to France, now this car, Rolls Royce, had been advertised as a, a car that never needed to be fixed. It was a no problem car. And so he got to France and within a few months it broke down. He phoned Rolls-Royce in England. They sent a mechanic. They flew a mechanic to France. He fixed the car. He went back home, and the man continued to drive his Rolls-Royce. But he kept on wondering, when's this bill coming that's going to have to be paid? And finally, he wrote them, and he said, I, I, I'm, I'm willing to pay the bill. I just haven't received it. And he received a note back from Rolls-Royce that said this, I'm sorry, sir but we have no record of anything ever having gone wrong with your car. <laughs> See, that, that's justification, folks. That's exactly it. When you place your faith in Jesus to be forgiven of your sin, God from that moment onward looks upon you differently. It does not mean that you stop sinning, that you don't make mistakes. It simply means that God does not keep a record of those mistakes anymore because the warranty of Jesus Christ is all-inclusive and it covers you, though you some, sometimes still grieve the heart of God, though you sometimes still even don't live up to your own standard, much less God's, though you still sometimes act very selfishly, Jesus Christ took all of that sin upon him on the cross, and the warranty covers you. That's the grace of God. That's justification by faith alone. Nothing I've done, nothing I could do, nothing I will do. Now, does this seem too good to be true? That's what, that's what some of the false teachers that Paul is writing in Galatians believed it's too good to be true. I have to add something to it myself. That's what they believed. And that's why Paul is writing the book of Galatians. We would call them legalists. They were called Judaizers. They believed that in order to be a Christian, you had to first become a Jew. You had to be circumcised. You had to obey some of the Old Testament law. And then you could be invited into the family of Jesus. And Paul said, no, that is not the gospel of grace. And they stumbled over radical grace that's attained through simple faith. Simple faith. You've got to do something to maintain the warranty, they thought. But friends, I want you to know this morning that we must not water down the warranty of Jesus. I want you to know we must not rob the grace gospel of its potency. I want you to know that we must not mix our good intentions and efforts with absolute, unmerited favor and unconditional love of God. 
I want you to know that we must not think that we are always and forever living in debt to Jesus. Friends, if you are a a person who has put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not in debt to Jesus. And if that ever gets preached in this pulpit, I don't want to be here. You know what it's called? It's called the debtor's ethic gospel. And just so you know what it sounds like, in case you ever hear it, it sounds like this. Jesus has done so much for you. What are you doing for Him? That's not the gospel of grace. Do you hear in that very statement a guilt-inducing, shame-inducing, guilt and and duty-bound response to the love of God instead of this joyful, loving, obedient response to say, oh God, I could never measure up, but thank you for what you've done. Do you not see the difference? I don't want to respond to God like He's standing over me with His arm folded and the law in His hand ready to hammer me down. I want to sit before God in His presence, on His lap, in the love of Jesus. That's the message of grace. And Paul ends chapter 2 by saying that in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, he ends by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, in other words, if it was possible by any kind of human merit, then Christ died for no purpose. Christ died needlessly, he says. Pack your bags. This meal means nothing. Christ died needlessly if it's possible that in our own ability we are able to attain to a righteousness that's acceptable to God, Christ died for no reason. Timothy Keller tells a story. He says, um, imagine your house is on fire, but the whole family has escaped. And I run up to you and I say to you, let me show you how much I love you. And I run into the burning house and I perish in the process. What are you going to say? You're going to say, what a stupid, wasted life. What a waste of a life. But pretend that your house is on fire and one of your children is yet inside the house and I run up to you and I say to you, let me show you how much I love you. And I run into the house and I I rescue your only child and I bring him out and and yet I die in the process. What are you going to say? You're going to say, look at how much that man loved us. If there's any way that somehow we can attain to something that's going to be of merit before God and acceptable to Him, then Christ died needlessly. But if indeed we are as helpless and hopeless and wounded and broken individuals needing a Savior like Jesus is, then He is the most wonderful Savior ever. All glory to Him. And so, 
Galatians 2, Paul introduces the theme of justification. And um, in chapter 3 now, as we proceed, sorry, a bit of a long introduction. <clears throat> in chapter 3, as we proceed, um, we're going to look at some of the implications of, of this. And I'm going to borrow from David Platt, actually, a commentary. I love how he presents the history of chapter 3 in Galatians as a, a Bible lesson through the high points. And I uh, found a PowerPoint, I, I found a, a picture I'd like to show to you of how, indeed, there are three peaks of a mountain, the same mountain range, but there are three peaks of this mountain range that Paul describes in Galatians 3. And the first peak is Abraham, and the second peak is Moses, and the third peak is Christ himself. And so let's take a look at these three, these three uh, pictures. And we're going to start by looking at Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Can we go to the next slide? That's it. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, and I'm not going to read the Scripture and have you stand this morning for the sake of time. I'm going to be reading in piecemeal some of the verses that we're going to look at. And then in chapter 3 of Galatians, you'll notice that he begins by saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish that having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Let's stop there. Paul is confronting a wrong view of justification. He is saying that it's not... He's, he's saying that there's people that are saying it's not by faith alone, but it's mixed with self-effort. It's the heresy that says that we get right with Jesus by what Jesus did. We would get right with God. But then God leaves you on your own. It's like, okay, I got you here, Jesus says. Now you take over and you stay right with God. That's not the gospel. That's not the message of, of Christ. But in order to stay right with God, we don't have to do certain things. It's not our merit that keeps us right with God. You begin by the Spirit and you stay in the Spirit. You begin by faith and you live by faith. You are not perfected by your own efforts. Now I know that some of you are thinking, and I've heard people asking the question, when's he going to bring balance to this grace message that he's been preaching? And I know some of you have been asking the question, but we do need to do something. And uh, I understand that impulse, that reaction to a radical grace gospel. I get it. And we're going to talk about that more next week and later on in May when we get into chapters 4 and 5 of, of this passage in Galatians. The, the gut reaction is, but that love and grace can be abused. And you know what I want to say to that? Absolutely. Take a look at the cross. Was the love and grace of God abused? Absolutely. In fact, if you just take a look at your own human relationships, does not true love get abused? Absolutely. Tell me if, if it's true love, if it isn't open to abuse. Come on. 
Of course it's going to be abused. Doesn't mean we don't preach the true gospel. Doesn't mean we don't preach the grace of God. Doesn't mean I don't put my full weight upon Jesus and none of self. We're going to come back to it, folks. I understand the dilemma you face in looking this through, but we're going to come back to it. Just hang on. But don't stop saying the truth in order to try and think you've got to balance it with something else. Let's move on. Let's talk about Abraham because Abraham is the illustration that Paul uses to describe justification through faith alone. Now, I want to ask the question before we look at it, why Abraham? And I want to tell you real quickly why. First of all, the reason that, that he's addressing, Paul's addressing Galatians is because they think that you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. They think you have to have the works of the law in order to become a Christian. And Paul points to Abraham because guess what Abraham was before God got a hold of him? He was a pagan. He wasn't a Jew. There were no Jews. He was the first one. He was a pagan. He was a Gentile. He was a moon worshiper. He had nothing to do with God. And God invaded his life and called him out of that darkness into the light. So number one, he chooses Abraham because Abraham is the father the nation of the nation of Israel. They looked to him, and yet he was the one that was saved by faith alone. Nothing he did. Secondly, the covenant that, that was made with Abraham was circumcision. But it says in the Scriptures that, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That all happened before circumcision. That all happened before he did anything of merit before God. He's the first man that was counted righteous purely by faith alone. He didn't do anything, folks. And so Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 6, and he's quoting from Genesis 15, 6, recalling the time when God said to Abraham one evening, he says, hey, come on out of your tent. He was sleeping. Abraham was asleep. He says, come outside. I want to show you something. Abraham walks outside of his tent, and God says, look up into the sky. Look at all those stars. And Abraham looks up and he sees all the stars and he says, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham's saying, I don't think so, God. I'm 75 and my wife's barren. We don't have any children. But he believed God, he says. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed. He just said, okay, God, I'm going to take you at your word. That's all he did. Actually, Abraham didn't do anything to be justified. He simply believed something. And you don't have to do anything to be justified before God. You have to believe in what God has done for you. It, was until, it wasn't until he was 99 that Isaac was born. And, Ab and Sarah was 90. And the writer of Hebrews, looking back, says, yeah, he was as good as dead. He was. As far as his body went. But that never stopped God from fulfilling his promise. So Abraham was justified completely by the grace of God. And Abraham maintained his relationship with God by the grace of God. 
One of the common misunderstandings that we have when we look at Old and New Testament is that we think that the Old Testament is the age of the law, and we think that the New Testament is the age of grace, and that's heresy, because actually God never intended to save anybody through the law. He always intended to save through faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham looked forward to Jesus Christ. We look back at Jesus Christ, but it's the same Savior that's going to be worshipped by Old Testament and New Testament and church aid Christians all alike. We're all going to gather around that throne in heaven one day. The Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ, is on that throne, and we will worship Him. And he will get all the glory from Abraham's and Moses and, and Paul and us. And so, let's move on to Moses. We asked why Abraham, let's ask why Moses. Why Moses? And I say Moses, though he's not listed here in name, the law of God is, is listed, and that's all from Moses. Who was Moses? Well, Moses was the great rescuer of Israel. They were 430 years in bondage as slaves in Egypt, and Moses was the one who liberated them. He was the one who led them out of slavery into the, into the desert, into the wilderness. And in that wilderness land, he organized them as a nation. And then God brought the law through Moses and gave the first time a written form of the law. This is what I expect of my people. And he gave that to them. And then what did Moses do? He led them right up to the edge of the promised land. Now that's a picture of the law, folks. The, just as Moses led them right up to the promised land, the edge, and then Joshua took them into the promises. That's a picture of the law. What can the law do? Can it save? No. Law can lead us right up to the edge of the promises of God, and then by faith in Jesus Christ, you enter the promises. And that's all the purpose of the law had. The law was never meant to be a saving device. The law was only meant to point out our need for a Savior in Jesus Christ. And so, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul quoting Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, which is a, a summary of Moses before he died, he says this, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And the word emphasis is on all things. Paul is pointing out that God never intended His people to be made right with Him through the, the laws. That's why He gave us priests and sacrifices and temples and all that thing. But, but instead, he's saying, no, the law was just given so that you might see how far you fall short. As soon as the law said, do not covet, guess what happened? I wanted to covet. You know, you're, you're like this too. As, as soon as someone tells you you can't do something, what do you want to do? And so the law was given so that we would understand the need that we have. Verse 11, it says, and It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous will live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And this is the incredible verse quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, that the entire Protestant Reformation was built on. You remember Martin Luther, the German monk. He was in Italy, and he was absolutely sick with the fear of the wrath of God that was upon him. 
and he kept thinking that there was some way through, through purgatory, he didn't want to wait that long. No, through, through uh, indulgences, through penance, he wanted to do something that the Catholic Church prescribed that could lessen his sin, that could take the weight of the wrath of God upon him, off of him. And he, he heard about a church in Italy, in Rome, that, that allowed an indulgence that if you went on your bare knees, on every step, all the way up, and if you, if you quoted Scripture and kissed the step and did all this till your knees were bleeding, that, that the weight of sin would lessen and you would be given an indulgence. And so Martin Luther went. And yet on his mind at that time was his study of Galatians. And on this verse kept on thinking it. Every time he went on his knees, every time he went up, he kept thinking, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Halfway up the stairs, he realized there's something awfully wrong. He left Italy, he went back to Wittenberg, and he began to study Galatians. And all of a sudden, this breakthrough came upon him. He writes later on, before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God. I was angry with God. But when by the Spirit of God, I understood those words that the righteous, the just, shall live by faith, then felt I born again like a new man. I entered those open doors into the paradise of God. Faith alone. See, that's the message of the grace gospel. And the problem with the teachers in Galatia that were false teachers was that they were looking at the Abrahamic covenant through the Mosaic covenant instead of looking at the Mosaic covenant through the Abrahamic covenant. Guess, guess which one came first? Abraham's covenant. The covenant of faith. And Moses never preached the law of God expecting that somehow people were going to live up to it. And so... The staff and others in our church building here have, uh, have had to adjust to a new alarm system. And um, we discovered something about a month ago, actually. We discovered that if someone sets the alarm and leaves the building not knowing that one of us is in our office, <laughs> that it just takes a little bit of movement to be detected and the alarm will go off. And there's no 10 seconds of of, of grace there. There's no 10 seconds of allowing us to run out of our office doors and get to the panel and type in a code. No, it is absolutely graceless. No 10 second warning. And that's because the alarm system is, to, is assuming that if you're in the building after the alarm has been set, you're not a staff member, you're a thief. Right? The system was not made for nice staff members. It was made for lawbreakers. The alarm system of this building is nonpartisan, not a respecter of persons. It treats everyone the same. It assumes that you are guilty if you're entering the building and you don't put in the proper code. And if you mess it up and the alarm company calls, they will assume that you are guilty unless you have the proper password that Kathy gave you when you got your key. It's a no-nonsense system. And God's law is like that. God's law just lands on every one of us. We're all guilty. We all fall short. But if you have been given by faith in Jesus Christ this, this justified grace of God upon you, you don't need to worry. you got a code. 
And that's what the purpose of the law was. It's just, it's just to show you that you need, you need, you need Jesus. And let's take finally look at the final piece here, and that is Christ. This whole thing leads to Christ, and that's found in verses 13 and 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit. You know, in Old Testament times, if someone was guilty of, of something that was punishable by death, it was usually death by stoning. And after they were dead, they were then hung on a tree. And, and the, the idea was that this was describing the cursedness. But they weren't cursed because they hung on the tree. They were hung on the tree because they were already cursed by the disobedience to the law of God. And it says in the Scriptures, and Paul's quoting Deuteronomy 21 here, he's saying, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And Paul takes from that that, that Jesus became the curse for us. Jesus became that curse for us. And so, what an important truth to remind ourselves of as we get ready to gather around the Lord's table. He didn't just take upon Himself the curse. He became the curse so that we might become the righteousness of God. There it is again, imputation. And so, in our debt, Jesus Christ has come. And the relational side of this is the fact that, that I can be right with God. This morning, as you gather with us around this table, I don't want you to think for a moment that you're not eligible because of your sin. I want you to know that if you've put your faith in Jesus, that if you're counting and believing on what He has done, then Jesus Himself invites you to come to this table. And uh, there's no guarantees that you're not going to sin again. Jesus did not sign a contract with you. He made a covenant with you. It's a covenant of grace. And we are unworthy. There's not one worthy person that could come to this table this morning. But he says, if you believe in me with all your heart, and if you're willing to accept me, even as I have accepted you, then you can be forgiven. A couple of years ago, I heard Paul David Tripp speaking and he said something that caught my attention. He said, you know, we don't have a law problem in the church. We have an awe problem. The problem of awe. We're not in awe of this God that we worship. And this morning, as you think of gathering around this table and receiving the bread and the cup, the, my prayer would be that we would stand in awe of the God of grace, what He did in His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you partake of the bread and the cup today, just remember, it is all of Him and not of you that you are right with God. We're going to be serving the meal in just a moment. And again, as always, take the tray from the person next to you, pass it to the person beside you, and then take <clears throat> with two hands the bread and the cup so that you can be served. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank You for this message this morning of grace and faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you might be honored and glorified in our meditation, in our minds, as we hold the bread and the cup in our, in our hands. And before we partake, we just 
pray your blessing on this meal and all who partake of it. We remember your death in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to know that uh, we can take this bread and, and drink this cup knowing that we are justified before a living God because Christ became the curse for us so that we might be the blessing of God. Eat and drink in remembrance of him. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. We're going to be uh, taking up an offering, as is our habit, uh, for a benevolent offering for needs in our community. There will also be a basket coming through with, uh, the, for the cups to go in. Please uh, put the cups in one basket and the offering in the other basket. God bless you. Lord Jesus, you are our God, you are our Savior, you are our friend. You are the one through whom we can know grace. You are the one through whom we can know freedom. And we give you praise. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. We'll see you all tonight.